I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little six. With a little sex in it. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Welcome back to another episode of Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen, joined by Samantha. Samantha, it's November. Are you excited for the holidays or the end of the year? Yes, very much so. I live in Pennsylvania, so the fall colors are really starting to come in and it looks amazing right now. Don't tell me about weather. I don't get weather anymore. It's just... 78 is a nice day. (laughs) But we get to kick off November talking about one of Samantha's favorite people, Mr. Joel McRae, which I am so excited about to have a Joel McRae discussion. We need to have the foremost expert I know that you know on Joel McRae, which is his grandson, Wyatt McRae. Wyatt, how are you? I'm doing great. And thank you guys so much for having me. It's wonderful to be on this podcast with all your listeners and looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for sitting down and doing this with us. Samantha, you know, and we've talked about one of the reasons we wanted to do this episode is, I hate to say unsung, but he really is an actor that when people talk about the big names of old Hollywood, the men, you get your Bogarts, your Brandos, your Monty Cliffs. And yet, Joel McRae is one of those who did practically every genre of film. You can correct me, Wyatt, maybe not a musical. (laughs) Yeah, well, he he did sing in a few of his films. Not that they were musicals, but he did sing. (laughs) He wasn't typecast to one type of performance or genre like some actors fought against the studio system to, to get out of being typecast. And yet... Not a lot of people seem to know who he is, which really irks me, which is why I'm so glad when, Samantha, you suggested wanting to do a Joel McRae episode. What's the first Joel McRae movie you saw? See, that's something that I tried to think about. It's really hard to say. One of the foremost early Joel McRae films for me would be Sullivan's Travels. That's your gateway drug to Joel McRae for a lot of people. But it's so hard to say. I honestly couldn't say. I've seen so many at this point. I didn't get the chance to get an exact count, but I think I've seen upwards of about 30 of his movies. So to pick the first is really hard. But I would say Sullivan's Travels is the first that I remember seeing. That's great. That's one that sticks out in most people's minds. It's such a classic film. There's no doubt about it. In terms of movies about Hollywood, it's the best. It's right up there among my top 10, I'd say, of all time. And he really carries the film. The whole heart of the film lies with him. Just Preston Sturgis, Veronica Lake. It's just a stacked movie. And it's so memorable. It's one of those. It's just such a classic, but it's not really talked about with the Sun Like It Hots, the Sunset Boulevards. And I really think it should be. I agree wholeheartedly. It really should be. And it's still used in some film schools here and there. But you hit the nail on the head. It was just a cast and a story that just everything clicked. The on-screen chemistry between he and Veronica Lake was just fantastic. And and he had a lot of fun doing that film. And it's one thing, back to your point, Kristen, 
My grandfather was one that never really sought the limelight, which is one reason I think he is not remembered quite as much as a lot of other actors of his era are. He was always here at the ranch when he wasn't making a film, and that's what he loved to do. And he used to joke around that he only acted so he could afford to ranch. In my opinion, and it sounds like you might share that opinion, he was as good as any of his peers. He was right at the top of his class, in my opinion. And when you're talking about other actors that cross genres and carried more than one different type of on-screen persona, if I had to compare him to anybody, I feel like he's a really good predecessor to James Garner. He was just as willing to go from romantic comedy to Western. Yes, he had those movies where he's carrying a gun and enforcing the law, but he was a really nice guy at heart. And they have a lot of similarities in that sense. That's a great comparison. I hadn't really thought about that one before. They both had, like you mentioned, similar characteristics and were both nice guys. So that's a good thing. The outdoors. No, they both did for sure. And My grandfather is remembered most for his Westerns. That's what everybody, the first thing that clicks in their mind with most of the people. But as you mentioned, he crossed genres from comedy and drama early in his career. He carried a lot of things, Sullivan's Travels being a great example. But he was just a very versatile actor. He could do just about anything. He's one of those actors, too, where I would also say Humphrey Bogart is a great example, where he made so many movies and so many different genres that you have entire fan bases of people who only like his romantic comedies or only like his westerns. And those seldom meet sometimes, which is so fascinating. I'm a huge romantic comedy person. I love Joel McRae and romantic comedies of the early mid-30s the most. The ones he made with Miriam Hopkins and Constance Bennett are some of my favorites. But I really haven't even dived into the Western world of Joel McRae as much, which I really should remedy considering how many I've seen of his. It's crazy that you've got entire fan bases just totally polarized in the different subgenres of his work. Well, everybody has their favorites. They have a certain type of film they like to watch and that they're attracted to. It only makes sense that there are certain people that only like to watch certain things. If he hadn't been such a Westerner and had the ranch, which... Westerns were just an extension of his personal life, and it was easy for him to do. And he always said when he got on the back of a horse and put on his hat, it was just another fun day for him. It wasn't really a work. But I really think had he not been so into the Western world, the Western side of things, comedy would have been where he would have ended up. He loved comedy, and, and he was a very fun guy, very comedic guy. He had a great dry sense of humor. Had he not gone the Western route, he would have ended up doing more comedy, probably more romantic comedies. I know most people would probably be surprised that Sullivan's Travels is not the first Joe McCray movie I saw because everybody knows I love Veronica Lake so much. For me, the first Joe McCray movie that I can remember seeing was The Most Dangerous Game from 1932. Uh, If we're talking about he did every genre, and that's considered a landmark horror film in many ways, but causes him to stand out and maybe also be forgotten compared to some of the other performers is that he looks so different than your bogeys and your Monty Cliffs. He's tall. He's got blonde hair. That was something that feels completely an anthema when you look at the stars that we remember, the men. A lot of them had dark hair. And just by the nature of him not having dark hair, I think that causes some distance. And then I watched Purple Rose of Cairo, the Woody Allen film, and reading about how Jeff Daniels spent a lot of time researching his character in that movie as being Joel McRae-esque. I was like, oh, that's really cool. 
we talk about the straight man in film. Nobody wants to be the straight man. Everybody wants to be the zany sidekick or something. But Joel McRae made the straight man look so good, not just physically, but also the way he presents the characters. You know, he played a lot of guys looking at some of those romantic comedies that were just trying to live their life and go from A to B. He played a lot of rich guys of privilege. He didn't want to be rich guys of privilege or inventors that just wanted to make something cool. Like in the Palm Beach story. Palm Beach story. I was yeah. just thinking that. It's a great example of it. He doesn't have, I'm trying to think of a really outlandish type of character that we now, <laughs> like a Stanley Kowalski, something very showy. But to watch all of those different films he made, he had so many movies working from the end of the 1920s. I hate the word reliable because reliable so often gets mixed up with dull, but he is reliable. You know exactly the type of movie that you're getting, the type of performance that you're getting. He grounds a very heightened form of cinema at the time. The 1930s into the 40s is this very exaggerated fantasy of filmdom that we don't see anymore. And he presents such a grounding influence that says, no, this is based in some type of reality. Maybe you're not wearing Constance Bennett's outfits, but these are still meant to be relatable to an audience. And I'm going to be that relatable person. And I love that. That's what was so great about him. Number one, his on-screen presence, he was tall and he had a great look about him. It was that all-American boy look. But you always knew, directors always knew what they were going to get from him. He was going to give a solid performance no matter what his character was. That's why he was so attractive and why he ended up doing so many films, because they knew what they were going to get, and they loved that aspect. He wasn't going to cause a scene on the set. He wasn't going to be a troublemaker. And and it just made him, as you said, very reliable. Kristen, I love that you brought up the whole trend through the 30s of him chasing rich girls, because I have talked before on the show about how a lot of those films, a lot of those romantic comedies especially, are about rich people and rich people's problems. It's so important that we bring Joel McRae into that genre of film because you really introduced the working man to this entire world of rich people and rich people's problems. I'm thinking of movies like Chance at Heaven with Ginger Rogers and Marion Nixon and how great he is in that. He really humbles all of the characters around him and brings them down to earth a little bit. I think of, of course, The Richest Girl in the World where you've got him and Miriam Hopkins and Woman Wanted, how amazing they are together. He's just that perfect grounding force in his movies. There's no question about that. Another great film, which is to me an overlooked little gem where he plays a blue collar guy again, is Reaching for the Sun, which was directed by William Wellman, which I think is a very, very fun film. There's no question about that. I just wanted to make one quick comment going back to his physical appearance and his physique. I read a review a few years back that compared Matthew McConaughey to my grandfather because they always had their shirt off in their films. (laughs) I got a big kick out of that, though, because I thought that's pretty funny. He would have laughed if he knew he was compared to Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) I watched Sullivan's Travels last week again to give it another watch, and it was the same thing. I was introducing it to someone who hasn't seen very many old movies, and there was that, of course, shirtless scene where he's part of the chain gang. Right. And... I could look over and they were shocked because they had seen a few old movies, but never any old movies where someone has their shirt off. And it's always Joel McCray. <laughs> Not to get too into the weeds on Joel McCray's shirtlessness, but I think the sequence that I always bring up is Bird of Paradise, where he's surfing the turtle. 
I'm not kidding when I say that there is a scene where he literally surfboards or boogie boards with a turtle. And it is both hilarious and says so much about the movie that you are about to watch. It's worth it. That's a great film. Very risque for its time. We talk a lot on the show, the pre-code, as this era that could not be replicated. I just watched one of the movies with him and Constance Bennett. And I forget the name because I watched so many Constance Bennett movies in a row, but she's an artist model and he's a painter, again, a rich guy who doesn't want to be a rich guy, but he's essentially having Constance Bennett pose nude. The paintings are showing nude bodies and she, of course, is not. But I was like taken aback a little bit. Oh, it's 1931 or 1932, whatever year it is. That's how it is. But to look at the different romantic films that he did, There's a reason that some of those sequences like the Palm Beach story or the more the merrier come up on some of the sexiest scenes because he has such a natural chemistry with so many of the women that he was acting opposite. We talk a lot now about actors who worked well with women directors or or actresses. He's a girl's guy. To watch him with Kay Francis or Veronica Lake, when you look at like a bogey, there's always an air of threat to Bogey. Or when you look at Brando, there's an air of intimidation. Or when you look at Robert Mitchum. I would say John Wayne, too. John Wayne, exactly. There's this air of domination, whether the character is going to do that or not. With Joel McCray, he's just a guy that wants to hang out with a girl, and it's not necessarily meant to be cheesy, but it's... I keep using the word natural because it just feels so grounded he really was an actor that i don't think gets a lot of credit for how he worked opposite the many actresses of the day many of whom in some instances constance bennett had more power i think at the time than he did when he he was making those movies Kay francis was certainly a more prominent star and yet he steps back and lets them do their thing without being the need to assert which you don't see a lot in actors today, let alone actors of that time. One reason a lot of the leading ladies of the day liked working with him, because he was not a threat to him. He became more of a partner in a scene than he was an overbearing threat to them. But, and I think back to the more the merrier scene on the steps with Gene Arthur. Most of that was ad lib. If you put a, another type of actor in there, it might not have come across as playful or as fun as it was. It might have been more dominating than it was with him. He was just that way. And he was a big, lovable guy. And he just tried to come across as naturally as he possibly could. There was no errors about him, no need to try and act bigger than he was. Just wanted to give a solid performance. And he always wanted to make his co-stars, his actresses, look as good as they could. That was something that Stanwyck put into his mind early on. And they did six films together. Obviously, Stanwyck was more established when they first started working together. She had that ability to tell him, and she gave him a lot of advice early on in his career. I think that's where a lot of that came from, is just be yourself and just be natural. You don't have to try and be somebody that you're not. Yeah, you definitely see that with Stanwyck in like, Gambling Lady. I love that one. That's my favorite of theirs together. He really started working just straight out the gate with some really heavy-hitting women, which I think was so great and really helped set him in his career. because. You have a lot of those pretty boys from the 30s like him and Tyrone Power being opposite those women and springboarding off of them is really what helped get their careers going and showing 
how great he looks opposite them, how great he acts opposite them. That was a big help to him early on. Great story of he and Stanwick when the first time they worked together and he was on loan from another studio. They were uh, standing around taking still photos, which they used to do in the day. They took a lot of publicity photos. and They were taking stills of the in-house cast, Stanwick and all the people that were at her studio, which I can't remember which one it was at the time. So he thought, well, I'll go to lunch. They're not going to get to me until later this afternoon. Well, while he was at lunch, they called for him and he wasn't there. And so when he came back in, Stanwick was on her way out the door to meet him. And she told him, if you want to make it in this business, you'd be here, you'd be on time and you know your line. And if you know Stanwick, she could cuss with the best sailor around. She laid into him and he said she was absolutely right from that point on. He, he was never MIA. He was always around when he needed to be around. But it taught him a great lesson. He never forgot that and always thanked her for it because she was right on the money. They had a very, very close relationship for the rest of their lives after that and loved working together. Stanwick was one of his favorite leading ladies to work with. I have to ask, as the Veronica Lake fangirl, I know that she spoke very highly of working with Joel McRae in her autobiography. And yet, supposedly, the rumor is, is that Joel McRae was offered I Married a Witch, and he didn't want to do it because supposedly he strongly, strongly hated working with her. I have no idea if you know anything that proves or disproves that, but I'm interested to know if you do. Not to throw this out in front of a strong Veronica Lake fan. but Oh, oh I already know. She was a very flawed woman. Nothing you can tell me will shock me. I, I, they had great on-screen chemistry. There's no doubt about it. But she had a habit of not always being on time to the set, not always fully knowing her lines. We all know she had a lot going on off-screen as well, but that didn't always sit real well with my grandfather. He was the type that was always on time, always prepared, always knew his lines. He was early, never late for anything, especially after the Stanwyck episode. After Ramrod, that had become a little more pronounced during that film, and he just felt like it wasn't something he wanted to put up with at that particular point in time. In a way, it's sad because they did have great on-screen chemistry, and they were great together and made a great pair. But at that point, he was just ready to move on. It's a nicer story than what Friedrich March allegedly said about her. So he gets, <laughs> he gets a bonus for that. <laughs> the ironic part about that is that later in life, when she was down on the skids for a while there, my grandfather heard about it and actually tried to help her out financially a little bit and did as anonymously as he possibly could. He wanted to try and help her because he didn't want to see what she was having to go through happen to anyone. And, and he was always appreciative for the work they had done together, I mean, for the way the films came out, obviously Sullivan's Travels was a big film for him and helped his career a tremendous amount. And so he wanted to try and help her in whatever way he could. While he was not vocal about it, like I said, he tried to be anonymous in his assistance to her. He felt for her. There's no question about that. I hadn't heard that before. That's amazing. I hadn't either. I'm glad we're getting the record set straight here. I think this is great. Because Veronica is definitely one of my favorite leading ladies of his. They only did the couple of films, but Veronica, in terms of Claudette, Claudette Colbrin, he are so great. I also love him opposite Ginger Rogers. I love Primrose oh, yeah. That stands out among my favorites of his, too. It's one of my favorites, for sure. And they had a lifelong friendship. And Ginger, of course, worked with my grandmother as well, finishing school. They just knew each other for years and years and stayed in contact. Later in life, after my grandfather died, my grandmother would still go visit Ginger down in Palm Springs once in a while. 
they had a very close friendship, no doubt about it. While we're on the subject of finishing school, I have to take the left turn here because I just want to say I went to my very first TCM Classic Film Festival in 2018 and finishing school was my first screening and I stood in line. I don't know if you saw why, if you saw the line outside of that screening, it was packed. You know, they brought me in the back way, so I didn't get to see the line, but they played it twice. They ended up adding another screening of it because it was so popular, the first one, which they hadn't really expected. Well, they should, because all the pre-codes are the ones that get packed. It was, I believe, 250 capacity theater, and the line was about five or 600 people. And I was in line by myself. I get a number like 500 something. I'm like, there's no way I'm getting into this movie. I decide to wait anyway, because there's nothing else that I want to see. And then somebody asked, is there anybody here by themselves? I'm like, me? And they let me in. It's like a miracle, a true miracle. And I sit down. Of course, you and Jeremy Arnold do the amazing intro. Loved the discussion. Both of you came up and sat right next to me. Oh, that's great. Oh. Yeah, I didn't get to say hi because I was like, he's here for his grandmother. I don't want to be talking through this whole movie. It was just one of the coolest experiences. And seeing that movie on the big screen was amazing. And it's really hard to talk about Joel McRae without talking about Francis D. Like what you're hearing? Then consider becoming a Ticklish Biz Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Our Powell, Ava, Lombard, and Taylor level supporters this year made our six-week Being Elvis series possible. And we're preparing to launch six weeks of The Thin Man in December. We're also a quarter shy of hitting our goal of devoting an episode to the howler of a biopic 1976's Gable and Lombard. Check out the Ticklish Biz community on Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Back to the show. No, no, that was one of the leading ladies that he tracked down and made his partner for life. That's the great thing about some of the festivals is being able to see those films on a big screen the way they were originally meant to be seen. It's just fantastic because TV just doesn't do it justice, in my opinion. It's great that we get to see them. And I'm very thankful for TCM. I got to say that because without TCM and the Westerns Channel and some of the retro stations that we have now, a lot of these films would have never been seen. I'm very grateful that we have that outlet. But to be able to see it on the big screen is just fantastic. My grandparents made two films together before they were married and two after. And doing the silver cord together when they started courting, the rest is history. They were married 57 years, and he passed away on the morning of their 57th wedding anniversary. A long union. We just got a documentary about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward and their relationship, but I always have to shout out relationships that last for very long times in old Hollywood, especially first marriages. Paul Newman was married before when he met Joanne Woodward. I don't remember if Basil Rathbone was married before he met his wife, but they also had a very long-term marriage as well. But to have a first marriage, have it be one and done, that does not happen at all. The fact that that happens here, they get the ultimate gold star. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't real common in Hollywood, that's for sure. It's like I tell people, the same problems happened back then that happen now. You just didn't have social media and all the tabloids and everything back then. And the studios tended to run the publicity and they could sweep a lot of that stuff under the rug. But it was the same temptations back then that are here now. It was the ranch that he always attributed to keeping them grounded and to keeping their relationship grounded because he was raised in Hollywood. So he knew what that was all about. Grew up with Louis B. Mayer and DeMille's daughters and had been to their houses as a young man. So he saw a lot of 
what happened or what goes on behind the scenes in Hollywood. And there was one reason that he always wanted to live outside of Hollywood and wanted to have the ranch, but he always attributed that to keeping them grounded because they were not in the middle of the fray, so to speak. And yet they could get to it when they wanted to. And their marriage was not without its issues like every marriage is. It takes a lot of work. There's no doubt about that. And he always called my grandmother a sticker-outer because anytime things got tough, she stuck it out with him. And and they just made it work. They had a great amount of respect for each other. And I think that's really what it took was that they uh, respected each other and respected each other's boundaries. Stuck it out for 57 years. I love, I love how, that. I love how you say it's rare for Hollywood. It's rare for humanity. Yeah. I mean, like, it really is. It especially really is. These days, but. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Yes, if you look at the statistics, it's, it's pretty rare across the board. What do you think it was about Francis specifically that attracted Joel to her? Do you think there were any other leading ladies that had a shot at being the future Mrs. McRae? Or was I, it just Francis? No, I, there were a few, but he always said that he never really wanted to marry an actress because he knew how they were. When he met my grandmother, he changed his tone a little bit. And it became, if I meet an actress that's willing to move out of Hollywood, then maybe, maybe I will. And I think that's what attracted her to him. She was a very simple person in the fact that she was not pretentious at all. She didn't, she didn't care about having a big mansion. She loved the out of doors. She was very adventuresome and, and was willing to take a chance on what was an unknown for her, having grown up in Chicago. She was born in L.A., but raised in Chicago. And so she was a city girl. So to come out to the ranch was a big adjustment for her. She hit him in a way that nobody else had. With the other actresses, it was a lot of glamour and just sticking to Hollywood and how are we going to become the power couple of Hollywood? And that's not really what he was after. And and my grandmother could have cared less about that as well. She loved being an actress and she loved working. And that's what her whole life was about. But being outside of Hollywood is what made it all work. And she was willing to take that chance. She was simple. She loved the beach. She loved horses. She loved all the things he loved. Made it easy. He worked with so many intimidating and amazing women and men. He worked with Sam Peckinpah, which nobody has a good Sam Peckinpah story, at least, that I've tried to research. We know he didn't work with Veronica Lake after those two movies, but was there an actor or a director where he was just like, one and done, never happening again? Because he wanted to work with that he never got to. He probably would have liked to have worked with Hathaway more. Hathaway came in and finished half a film, Come and Get It, which had been started with another director. And a lot of people asked me whether he ever worked with John Ford. And he knew John Ford very well. I have home movies of them on a ship to Hawaii, which is a very, very cool home movie. He never really had any desire to work with John Ford, especially after knowing how he was with John Wayne. It was not really a desire of his to work with that. He loved Jacques Teneur, people like that that would not necessarily tell you how to do it, but let you know what they were looking for and let you find a way to do it. Those were the directors he liked working with. Preston Sturgis, he loved. Preston Sturgis was probably his favorite director, and he would have made every film for Preston if he could have. If you talk about one that he would have liked to work with more, Preston probably would have been the one. Because Preston, of course, was also a writer, and the dialogue that he wrote was, my grandfather said it fit him to a T. They just thought alike. So he loved working with Preston. There's no question about that. That was probably his favorite. And Bill Wellman, he loved working with Bill Wellman as well. They made several pictures together. I'd say probably Preston was one of his favorites. He liked Frank Lloyd, did Wells Fargo with my grandmother. 
he enjoyed working with Hitchcock. Hitchcock was one that maybe was a little bit too lax for my grandfather because Hitchcock would fall asleep during a scene and then wake up and say, was it good? And if it was, it'd say, print it. But he loved Hitchcock and my grandfather did a great impression of Hitchcock. And of course, Hitchcock was a frequent visitor to the ranch. He loved to come out and he loved the fresh butter and cream that came from the milk cows out here, <laughs> which showed in his physique. He loved working with all those guys, but I'd say Preston was probably one of his favorites. But he talked about him on a frequent basis. And Peckinpah, you talk about Peckinpah, Ride the High Country is a classic, probably the crowning achievement of Westerns for my grandfather. Essential right there, yeah. yeah. Still considered a top 10 or 20 for a lot of people. But at that time, Sam was not the person that he became later on. He was not a tyrant during that film. And of course, working with my grandfather, Randolph Scott, he had a lot of respect for them, and they were much older than he was, so he was not going to cause them any trouble. He was a little hard on the crew during that time, but which he became famous for throughout all his career. He actually respected my grandfather and Randy's opinion. If they had an opinion on a scene, they would tell him, and he would actually listen, which was great. But it was still early in his career. But they had no problem with Peckinpah at all, and my grandfather actually appreciated the way he directed the film. I love that. I always wondered, at least to my knowledge, why he never worked with Anthony Mann. That's another really essential Western director that I would have loved to see, especially do a little bit of a turn, give him a Western psychological drama. Can you imagine Joel McRae in The Naked Spur, for example? (laughs) I think that would have been pretty incredible. It just didn't happen because of either stories or studios, wherever you may be under contract to or whatever was going on, or you were busy doing another film. And sometimes... It just never worked out to work with a specific director or another actor or actress or whatever the case might be. He did what he was asked to do and worked with who he was asked to work with, tried to make the most of it. Growing up as the grandson to Joe McCray, is there a moment that you remember that you realize, oh, my grandpa's not like other people's grandpas? Yeah, it's funny. One of the first questions I always get is, did you know your grandfather very well? I was almost 30 when he passed away, so I got to know him very, very well. And my dad ran a couple of ranches that my grandfather owned when I was a kid. So he was always around. We always spent a lot of time together. The first time I really realized that there was something else going on, other than him being a rancher and my grandfather and all that, I had always ridden horses with him. And so I knew him in that vein. But I was in the fourth grade. Actually, it was towards the beginning of the fourth grade year. And I walked into school one morning. My teacher said, wow, we really enjoyed seeing your grandfather on TV last night. I had watched the same film because my dad always woke us up if he was on TV or I had watched it. and The light bulb went off and I thought, wow, other people watched it too. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> and I began to realize that, hey, other people are interested for what he did on the screen. So he had this whole other career that I was not really aware of until that point. And then as I got older, when we would be at a restaurant and people would come up and ask for his autograph, you begin to put two and two together. And, and as I got older, I began to realize the importance he had in the golden age of Hollywood, what's termed the golden age or golden era of Hollywood, what a big part of that he played. But it was really that day in the fourth grade that the light bulb went off and I realized he had this whole other life, (laughs) which was funny. I guess I was a slow learner. Was your grandfather, if somebody came up to him, how did he feel about autographs and fan interaction? He was always very appreciative of the fans. Both he and my grandmother always felt like Without the fans, they would have had no career. It was the public that made them what they were. And if it hadn't been for them buying movie tickets and supporting the films, they wouldn't have had the careers they had. So he always took the time to sign autographs and talk to people. 
he was in the middle of dinner, he might not always be real thrilled if he was taking a bite and somebody came up and <laughs> asked him for an autograph. Timing was everything. I remember we were at a function in Beverly Hills one night. He and I went into the men's room together and some guy followed him in <laughs> and asked for an autograph. And he just looked at me and he said, well, that would take the cake. <laughs> he said, would you mind if you wait till we get outside? <laughs> you get people that they're just not thinking. They're so excited they want an autograph, no matter what it is. He was always very appreciative of it. It was one reason he and my grandmother later in life, when the ranch ceased to be so much of a working ranch, and they started dispersing little parcels to local causes like the Boys and Girls Club and the YMCA, and they gave them small parcels of land that they could do what they wanted to with to help their cause. It was one reason they did that is because they just always felt the need to give back to the public that had supported them for so long. It had been decades that the public came out and paid to buy tickets to come and see these films, and they just felt it was very important to give back. Considering all of the amazing people that your grandparents knew, did you ever get starstruck meeting some of their friends? I never really did because I met a lot of them and still meet a lot of folks, and I've gotten to be around them. I can't say that I was ever overly starstruck. And it's probably because of being around my grandparents for so long and just hearing them talk about a lot of these people. It was as if you were talking about your friends and having dinner with your friends. I remember having dinner with Lloyd Bridges one night and the family. And I told a couple of my friends about it. Their jaw dropped. And I said, well, we were just having dinner. That's the thing about it that you realize is most of those people are just normal people. They're just like you or I. They might have huge careers on the screen and live in a different style. But when it comes right down to it, they're just people. You just have a conversation with them like you do anybody else. If there was one that stands out, not so much starstruck, it's just because of the career he had. But with Ron and Nancy Reagan, who were both good friends of my grandparents, the first time I met Mr. Reagan, he was president. So he was President Reagan at that point which had a whole different connotation to it. You mean a president. There's only so much (laughs) that can shock you at that point. Uh, That's probably the one that would stand out the most, just because of how much outside of Hollywood he had achieved. My grandfather used to joke about when Reagan started, of course, my grandfather was a little older and was much more established as an actor at that point. He used to like to joke that his contract was always a little bigger than Reagan's was. But anyway... a lot of people forget is Reagan made a lot of B movies. He was in some fantastic films. King's Row is a favorite of mine. You've got Hollywood starstruck here and then presidential starstruck is up here. So definitely can see how that would be two different things. It was two different things. There's no question about it. You mentioned B pictures. It's always funny to me. A lot of people don't understand the difference between A and B pictures. You know, I'll have people that come up to me and say, oh, your grandfather made so many great B westerns. And I said, well, He never really made any B-Westerns. They were all A-Westerns, even though some of them might have been borderline later on in the 50s. It's interesting in the Hollywood life, the difference between the guys that made all B-Pictures and the guys that made all A-Pictures. It's a different world, really, in a lot of respects. We're coming at this weird time where old Hollywood is coming back on screen. We're getting allegedly a biopic about Fred and Ginger. We're getting something about tangentially connected to Gene Kelly. Would you want to see a Joel McRae biopic down the line? I don't think I would necessarily want to see a biopic. I've been working on a documentary on my grandfather. 
I would much rather see the real story told as opposed to a biopic. I wouldn't be opposed to it. It would be fine. I'm not sure he was, as we talked earlier, in the public limelight enough to probably support a biopic. Wasn't controversial enough, maybe, because it seems like most biopics are made on somebody that had some sort of controversy, maybe not on screen, but off screen. They always want to pull that part into it. And this has been a labor of love. I've been working on it for 10 years, but just always takes a backseat to everything else. But hopefully one of these days I will get it done. I would be happy with that. I was going to say, we'll be the first ones to say the documentary is what we want. (laughs) That's what we want. Biopic is the pie in the sky. You never know. I'm trying to think of who would even play Joel McRae in a biopic at this point. Yeah, that'd be a good question because I can't really think of anybody that has the same kind of look that he had. Yeah, I would the- say Army Hammer pre all of the Army Hammer stuff. That's <laughs> where <laughs> well, sure I would want to play it now, that's for sure. <laughs> I was just looking at biographies. There's only one Joel McRae biography that I can find online. And that one is not accurate if it's the one I'm thinking of. It's another thing I have to tell people. The internet these days, you can't believe everything that gets put out there because some of it is not accurate. And if that's the one I'm thinking of, that one is not accurate. Shocked me who has maybe one or no biographies. The book seems like the easiest thing, and especially if the biography is not good, where you're like, God, I wish there was something better that could counteract the awfulness that is out. There are two books out, Joel McRae of Film History and Francis D. of Film History. One was a work for hire that I hired the gentleman to do the research on my grandmother's. The other one had been done years ago that I bought the rights to. And we totally redid the book, put new pictures in it, corrected a lot of mistakes. I added the forward and the bio sections on both of those. So there's at least something out there that's somewhat accurate. Those are both available on Amazon. They're mainly filmographies, but I did put bio sections in both so that people would have a little bit of background on both of them. Are there movies of your grandfathers or your grandmothers that maybe don't get enough love that fans should make time to seek out? There are. With my grandmother, there's a lot of them because a lot of them have never never been put out, never come out. Some of them that have, like I Walked With a Zombie, which is going to be shown on the TCM cruise, which she always thought was a farce. Those have become cult classics. I'm not sure what the attraction is to some of them, but she did so many great things. She's remembered for Little Women, obviously, which is a great one. But she did so many great films. I can't think of one off the top of my head that would stand out above the rest. I just think any chance you get to watch a Frances D film, you should do that. Because she was great. She was really a great actress. Probably much better an actor than my grandfather was, to be honest with you. She worked very hard at it and always got mad at him because he said, well, if they want me, they'll come and get me. He didn't take the time to take classes and do all that stuff where she studied very hard and studied the method procedure and all that was just coming in vogue at that time. And some of her best stuff has never been seen. Some of her best stuff, which I had the chance to go to the UCLA archive a couple of years ago, and some of her best stuff, like Fireside Theater that was made for television, but she was fantastic in it, better than any film I'd ever seen her in. Unfortunately, that stuff will never get seen because it'll probably never, never be put out unless UCLA decides for some reason to do it. It is available for people to go to the archive if they want. I'm not sure what that process is. It's worth seeing. And with my grandfather, he did so many great films. But Stars in My Crown, it was one of his favorites. And one I've always felt doesn't get the due that it should. He was fantastic in it. Probably 
one of the most natural parts you'll ever see him play because it was a character that I think he could see himself being in real life, kind of aspired to be. And it's a fantastic film, deals with a lot of things from race relationships. It's well worth seeing if people get a chance to see it. Stars of My Crown, 1950. Listeners, you can, of course, let us know all your favorite Joe McCray movies or anything else. You can send them to us via Twitter or Instagram or TikTok at ticklish underscore biz or at ticklish biz on Instagram and TikTok, or you can email it to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. Wyatt, it has been so great to get to talk to you today. We appreciate your time so much. Where can fans find you online? Feel free to throw out anything that they should know about. I want to thank you, Kristen and Samantha, for having me on first. It's been a lot of fun. It's always great to talk about this subject matter, something that's close to my heart. I always like talking about two people that I loved very much. But I would just give a shout out for the ranch. We have a foundation that helps support the ranch. My grandfather's old ranch. We're in the process of rehabbing all the old structures here at the ranch. We do movies during the summer. I've got a big 20-foot blow-up screen, and we do outdoor movies. You can follow us on Facebook at McCray Ranch, and then also McCrayRanchFoundation.org, which has a little bit of history on the ranch and also has our schedule of upcoming events. And lastly, I'll just plug a film that I did earlier this year called The Contested Plains, which was finally completed in September and hopefully will be out somewhere sometime soon, I hope, before the end of the year. Probably History Channel or something of that nature. Anyway, you'll be on the Classic Cruise. I'll be on the Turner Classic Movie Cruise coming up in November. So that ought to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that. Any of you that are going to be on the cruise, come up and shake my hand. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, we are on all podcast platforms, including Apple, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and YouTube. If you are on Apple Podcasts, help us out. We've gotten some great reviews in the last couple of months. We would love some more, so leave us one. We are, again, on all social media platforms as well, including Twitter, at Ticklish underscore Biz, Instagram and TikTok, at Ticklish Biz, as well as Facebook. So be sure to follow us so you know what is going on there. And if you want to support us with your money, we have a Patreon account at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We are prepping up to send out some amazing gifts for Christmas to our patrons. You can guest on future episodes, be part of deciding what subjects we tackle, all sorts of things, patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We do all sorts of bonus shows, including based on a true podcast. We did our episode on Blonde. You can hear me and April Vivier grouse about how horrible that film is. We also just did our Halloween double features episode on the 1960 versus 1995 versions of the witch of the damned spoiler there is a winner so that's all at patreon.com slash ticklish biz we will be on our regular schedule once again we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode until then